Well, good morning, Chapel. How's everybody doing this morning? Man, y'all braved the rain and the cold. Y'all are like real Christians today. Uh, so it, it is good to be. We're going to start a new series in just a second, but I wanted to go through a couple things. One, midweek prayer starts back up this Wednesday, and we've changed the format just a little bit. So we're going to have worship and then two major prayer focuses because we want our church to be the, the engine of our church to be prayer. We don't want it to be ideas or, or dreams or, or desires or passions. We want the driving force of chapel to be prayer. So we're going to start praying into everything we do. We're also adding a teaching component to that. We're starting a series called NUMA, which is a theology of the Holy Spirit. If you've ever had questions about the Holy Spirit, we're looking at walk from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation on who the Holy Spirit is. Uh, what's his ministry, what's his role, what's his personality, what's his gifts over the next few weeks. So you can make sure to make that a priority. But this, if you got this, you can take this out real quick. This is our annual impact report. We started doing these a couple years ago. And so this covers a lot of things that happened in 2022. And so there's a lot of updates. It goes through some of our uh, vision update. It goes through some of our sermon series, what God did. It also goes through our uh, report of attendance, salvations, baptisms, and then there's a financial report towards the back as well. So we wanted to make sure you could celebrate with us what God did in 2022. Financially, God was just a huge blessing to this church. It was probably our best year ever financially, so we were able to do more outside the walls of this church, but also prepare for the future through that. And salvation, I think there's 133 salvations, 25 baptisms. Uh, and then this past Wednesday night, we had 17 people follow the Lord in water baptism at Sig Night. So give the Lord a big round of applause, which is just cool to see, see people following the Lord in water baptism. Uh, so a ton of stuff going on. If you have Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I'm starting this series on the Apostles' Creed, and I'm going to explain what that is in a second. Based on, before Christmas, I did a, a theological survey. We, we shared it through email, shared it with you on Sunday morning. Just kind of getting a, a temperature of what's the theological background and beliefs of our church. And through that and through looking at the church at large, just realized we needed a way to just re-found the foundations of belief, at, not just in chapel, but the American church as whole. And so one of the ways me and the elders came up with was preaching uh, through the Apostles' Creed. He said, what is the Apostles' Creed? There's been tons of creeds and statements. A creed is basically like a doctrinal statement or a belief statement of not just a church, but any organization. And so the New Testament church had creedal statements. And this one is the, the, the foremost or first or foundational creed in all of Christianity. And it was used for up until the Reformation of the church. It was used as the primary guidance of belief for the church. And then after the Reformation, uh, many people wanted to say, you know, we just need the word. We don't need creeds. And so it kind of got away. But I believe it's time to kind of bring it back as a foundational guidance for us in our belief system. And so the way the, the creed started was if you went way back, if you got saved in A.D. 90, so 60 years after Jesus passed away, you're part of the New Testament church, and you got saved, here's what it would look like for you to get baptized. You go through a multiple-year process of affirmation, meaning they would teach you the ways of Jesus, the, the heart of Jesus, the word of God, what the apostles learned, they would reteach you, and they go through this teaching process for three years, and in that three years, you'd be a part of church service, just like this, but every Sunday they would do communion or the Lord's Supper, which is a huge potluck they call a love feast, and at that moment, they would ask anybody who had not been baptized to leave. 
So if you got baptized or if you got saved, it would take you three years almost before you could partake in baptism and then the Lord's Supper. So every week we'd say, hey, you're dismissed. We're about to eat some bunions, ribs, and some fried chicken and, you know, some Outback Steakhouse and some Chick-fil-A. But if you ain't baptized yet, you got to go eat some snacks at home. And they would throw it out. And so the process was they were making sure that the people that they admitted into the church through baptism actually followed Jesus. Because at this point in time, you know, it was very, very delicate. The enemy was sending people in to try to destroy the church from the inside out. And so it's been three years making sure this person truly was willing to lay down their life for Jesus, really following Jesus. And when it came time for baptism, after almost three years, the, the most important moment of their life, they begin fasting and praying. And the Easter Sunday Eve, so the, Sunday, or the Saturday night before Easter, they'd have an all-night prayer vigil getting ready for baptism. They'd be fasting and praying and seeking God's face. And at sunrise on an Easter Sunday is the only day in the New Testament church they actually baptize people. They get them up at the break of dawn. They put them, cover them in oil to, to cleanse their skin. And they'd walk them into the next river, Jordan River, wherever it may be. And as they'd enter in, they would get completely naked as they'd baptize them representing a new birth. If you were born physically naked, you were born spiritually naked, dependent on God, not your mother. And as they begin to baptize them, they'd actually baptize them three times. They'd take them under the water and they say, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And they'd pull them up and they'd say, I believe. And they'd baptize them again under the water and they'd pull them up and they'd say, do you believe in Jesus, the Son, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered and crucified under Pontius Pilate, put into the grave, killed, and all that. And they say, I believe that they take them under again and they bring them back up. Because, you know, some of y'all need to be baptized more than once. You've got to wash all that junk off. <laughs> Baptize them again. They bring up, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Do you believe in his church and communion and forgiveness of sins and eternal everlasting life? And they'd say, I believe. And they'd pull them out of the water. And they'd put them with oil again to anoint them. And they'd put them in all white clothes, symbolizing their new their purity, their wholeness, their cleansiness, their, their forgiveness of sins. And they'd walk them back to the church where they'd get to partake in the Lord's Supper for the very first time. And that's how this creed began. It wasn't written down. It was a, a catechism-like to, to reaffirm the beliefs of the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And around 140 A.D. is when they kind of put it to paper to make it part of the church. And it was part of the church until then, until now, and so it, it's a vitally important statement because it guided their beliefs to make sure everyone that said they were a Christian actually believed the same things. They didn't have the Bible yet. They didn't have denominations yet. They didn't have catechism yet. So this was the form of making sure that they were actually aligned with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you could say it like this. It became the Pledge of Allegiance for the kingdom of God. I believe in God the Father. Almighty, creator of heaven. I believe in the Son, Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit. How many of y'all remember in school when they used to actually do the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States? How many of y'all are old enough? Y'all are old. They don't even do that anymore. But what they're trying to do is align everyone in that classroom to the beliefs about America. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, for which it was founded, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Right? They're aligning the beliefs in the same way the Apostles' Creed was the Pledge of Allegiance to align the beliefs 
of all the citizens of the kingdom, not of America, but the citizens of the kingdom to the same proper beliefs in order to make sure that the church remains strong despite all of the opposition. Now, it's not the word of God. It's a summary of the word of God. It's not, this isn't authoritative. I'm not going to preach the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to use the Apostles' Creed as an outline over the next few weeks to set up the doctrines or the theologies or the word of God from the creed. Because it's like this, it, it's not the power or authority of God's word, but it does reflect the power and authority of God's word. It's like the moon. The moon doesn't have any light on its own. It doesn't have any heat on its own. It doesn't have any beauty on its own, but it reflects the light of the sun. Therefore, you can see the beauty of the sun through the reflection of the moon. In the same way, the Apostles' Creed summarizes the doctrine of the kingdom and the theology of the kingdom so that you and I and our kids and those around us can know what we actually believe in a stanza that helps us get through. It's a, it's a powerful Moment. And so three things real quick that the Apostles' Creed helps us with. It establishes theological clarity and balance. So the Apostles' Creed for the New Testament church, it, it created theological clarity and balance. What is actually important and how to stay balanced, which is key. You see, uh, doctrines like the Trinity, creation, the incarnation, the resurrection, the Holy Spirit, the church, eternal life, and the forgiveness of sins. It, it gives us clarity of what God actually thinks is important, but also balance. And I don't know about you, but I've been in church world enough to know that for us believers, it is extremely easy to get out of balance, balance theologically. I've seen enough crazy, I've seen charismatic churches get so caught up in the gifts of the Spirit, they forget about the gospel in itself. I've seen some people get so caught up in just the gospel, they forget all about the Holy Spirit, who is also God and his deity. I've seen people get so caught up in, in politics or, or even social justice or all these other, that they get out of balance. And the Apostles' Creed gives us guidelines to stay in balance. It's like if you go to the gym, which I'm not going to the gym because I wait till all the crazies get out of the gym that just spent all their money because of New Year's resolutions. After they get out of the gym, I'll go back at some point, maybe. When you go to the gym, you'll, you'll see a guy who's maybe lifting weights. Usually maybe a young guy, maybe a middle-aged guy. And all they do is work out their arms, their chest, and they work. They pump iron, they pump iron, they pump iron. And then you see them stand up, and they got these really skinny chicken legs. And they look like a top. They're kind of top-heavy. Right? Why? They're out of balance. They focus so much on one area that they're no longer strong and healthy. In the same way, when you get theologically out of balance, you overfocus in a certain area and you can kind of get top heavy or unhealthy where you can't function correctly. So, clarity and balance. The second thing would be the Apostles' Creed helps us connect with the roots of our faith and the global church. The global church at large still knows the Apostles' Creed. When we, we say it here, they'll be saying it overseas. When we say it here, they'll be saying it in South America. The, the, ev almost every believer since the early church has known the Apostles' Creed, spoke the Apostles' Creed, and confessed the Apostles' Creed. And you say, well, what's that really matter? It matters because of this. There's a word, I don't know if you know this word, it's called deconstruction. Touch your neighbor say deconstruction. Deconstruction is a movement of... of primarily younger people who are deconstructing anything with authority, but especially the church. They're deconstructing America. They're deconstructing the country. They're deconstructing corporations. They're deconstructing their faith. But what I've realized is when they're trying to tear apart the church and deconstruct the faith of Christianity, they're not really deconstructing the New Testament gospel 
Christianity. They're not deconstructing the Apostles' Creed. There's really nothing in that creed that would make somebody say, I don't like that. What they're deconstructing is the American version of Christianity, the corporate version of Christianity, the political lobby and activity of Christianity. They're deconstructing the greed of Christianity. They're deconstructing a version of Christianity that is not actually the creedal version of Christianity. And so if we want to see our church face the opposition of deconstruction, we must have a Christianity that is founded at its roots, not founded in America. Vitally different. Vitally different. One of the, the greatest visions I ever had, it was probably 15 years ago, Toy and I were at the beach, listening to a podcast, I was reading my Bible, I was watching the, the, the waves crash in, and I hear the Lord say, look how beautiful this, this beach is. I begin looking, I'm looking at the waves crashing in. I take my headphones off. You can hear the waves crash and the sun baking in. He said, it's beautiful, isn't it? I said, yeah. He said, I look behind you. And I look behind me and it's Panama City. So it's like airbrush t-shirt, airbrush t-shirt, airbrush t-shirt, go-karts, putt-putt, you know, daiquiris and all, all this junk everywhere. And he said, this place is beautiful even if that stuff doesn't exist. He said, people started coming to this beach for the simple beauty of the water, the sand, and the sun. He said, but man wanted to capitalize and maximize the potential. So he started putting all this other consumer-based stuff around it. But still, people don't come there for Airbrush t-shirts. They don't come there for the go-karts. They don't come there for putt-putt. They don't come there for really bad seafood. They come there for the beach. And he says, it's the same way with my church. He said, my church is beautiful in its simplicity. In the simplicity of the gospel, that God is our Father, that Jesus is our Savior, and the Holy Spirit is our friend. It's this beautiful expression of heaven on earth. But once man got part of it, they want to start putting up airbrush t-shirts and all this other stuff around it that distracts us from the beauty of God's church. And so when we reconnect with the, the roots of our faith, it actually gets all that stuff out of the way to get back to the basic square root of who we truly are. Number three with the Apostles' Creed defines Christian unity. Defines what's important, what we can agree on, what we don't have to agree on. One of the great quotes of all times, it says, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and also in all things, charity or love. I Meaning that's, that's a quote I live by, that in the essentials, which is God is our Father, God is good. Jesus is, was Son of God, Son of Man. He came, he was born of a virgin, he died, he was resurrected, he ascended, he's coming back. And the Holy Spirit, which is his spirit, who empowers us, who gives us gifts, who's with us currently at all times, those things are essentials. We cannot agree to disagree on those things. I have atheist friends we get together and discuss, and I said, we can discuss anything. We can discuss the Bible, we can discuss this, but you don't get to argue that Jesus is not the Son of God. You don't get to argue that the Holy Spirit is not real. You don't get to, you get to argue those. Why? Because those are essentials. We can't handle our relationship together if you tell me who I truly am is fake. We can't have that. But in non-essentials, which this happens in church world, some people believe more than the creed. Some people believe more about the Holy Spirit. Some people believe more about God the Father. Some people believe more about the church. Some people believe more about Calvinism or Arminianism or all these things. We can agree to disagree. That's your preference. You can have those. Just don't force those on me as gospel. 
Like a couple years ago, we, we here we believe in women in ministry. We empower women in ministry. I have a teaching if you want it. We can get it to you. Teaching on women in ministry. And at the time, Beth Moore kind of got blasted by some of the far-right fundamentalist churches. That she shouldn't be teaching. She be, should be in the kitchen cooking, which is, whew, You can tell those guys aren't married because they wouldn't say that if they were married. And so I, I, I posted my support for Beth Moore. And how God uses women throughout the Bible, go through the, and there's a guy who, who has a, a, I'll say, Church of Christ background that I had some type of acquaintance with. He slides up on my Facebook and begins blasting. No, First Corinthians fourteen thirty nine. Women aren't supposed to talk to each other. I was like, well, maybe if more men read First Corinthians fourteen one through four and they were prophesying more or praying in tongues more, maybe women wouldn't need to speak more. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. we ain't talk about that. No, you started it. He said, when are I supposed to do that? I said, whoa, listen. And he just kept going. I was like, look, man, like, it's okay. Like, it's not a gospel issue. If you don't want women to speak in your church, they don't have to speak in your church. But if I want them to speak in mine, I'll let them. And there's nothing you can do about it. He says, well, you're wrong. This is a gospel issue. So now he's saying that if you allow women to speak in your church, you no longer believe the gospel, and you're going to hell, and your whole church is going to hell. So that's where if you get out about I don't see anything about women in ministry in the Apostles' Creed. And that's what defines true Christian unity. Because we've begun to be identified not by what we believe or who we believe in, but what we believe against. And as an American church, we are more known by non-believers for what we're against than what we're for. And so this helps us define Christian unity because it's vitally important. It starts with, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That word believe is the word credo. That's where the creed comes. Credo. It means believe, not just believe mentally. It means believe into. I'm believing into the Father. I'm believing into the Son. I'm believing into the Holy Spirit. I'm believing into the church. I'm believing into forgiveness. It means I'm believing into something because there's a difference between knowledge and belief. You can know something and not act upon it, right? I know, I know some geometry. I don't use geometry. There's certain things you know, but you doesn't produce a belief. I know I should go to the gym, but I don't go. I, I know certain things, but it doesn't produce. All belief leads to an action. So it says, I believe in God the Father. I'm going to live like he's my father. I believe in Jesus the Son who, who is my Savior. I'm going to live like he saved me from my sins. Therefore, I'm not going to keep walking in sin. I believe in the Holy Spirit who is going to come back with Jesus for in his fullness, I'm living my life in preparation for him to return. See, that belief means something. And here in Acts 17, you're going to see why. It says this, kind of the setup. Paul is on his way in, on his journeys. He's a missionary. He's in Athens. He walks into Athens and he starts seeing in the town hall. It's like he walks into Times Square, New York. He's in Athens, he starts seeing all these different people, philosophers and religious people, and it's kind of where they get together like a town hall and begin to discuss and argue beliefs and philosophy and religion. And Paul walks right up into this mess. And as he walks into the mess, he kind of sees what the reality of the culture is. And he says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked with him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Everybody say idols. Idols doesn't necessarily mean a statue. It means different beliefs that you, you put your life into. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Sounds like America today. It's not about what we know, it's about what's new. And it says, so Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are very, what, religious. Touch your neighbor and say religious. So he's not battling demons, he's battling religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. He's, he's basically starting the, the creed right now. And everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since him, he himself gives all mankind breath and everything. And he made the one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and, bound, and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. For the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked him, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysus and Arapagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Paul walks right into the, the foundation of Athenian culture. And he walks in, all they care about, what's new, what's new, what's new? Is there a new thing? Is there a new social media thing? Is there a new this? Is there a new this? And as people, we are infatuated with the new. We always want something new, but Paul didn't take them to something new. He took them back to something ancient, creation and God's story and redemption in Jesus and his spirit and his coming again. He took them back to something ancient because there was this battle going on, not between evil and good. There was no evil going on. There was no witchcraft, no demonic activity. The battle that was going on was the battle between beliefs and beliefs. Beliefs and beliefs. And when you read the Bible, the theme of the Bible is not this actually war against good and evil. It's more of a battle between God and good. Belief and belief. True belief and false belief. You see it throughout the Bible. And so Paul walks into Athens and this is battle between belief and belief and belief. Today in our church world, in our culture, it's not a battle between necessarily good and evil. It's about belief and belief. 
The belief in the one true living God or belief in all the idols of culture. The belief in Jesus as a savior or belief in all these other things that may be saviors. Belief in God and his kingdom or belief in America and her prosperity. It's all these beliefs and that is where the war actually takes place. Thank God Paul actually knew what Paul believed. And so Paul was able to lay down what he believed with boldness and courage. And I'm telling you, not just Paul, but all of us at some point very soon have to be bold in our beliefs or we will conform our beliefs to the loudest voices. Social media, the news, politics, they're all trying to conform your beliefs by being the loudest voice. They think the louder you are, the more intimidating you are. But as a believer, would you know that you know that you know and you believe that God is your father, that Jesus is your savior, and the Holy Spirit is your friend. When you know it doesn't matter what anybody else says, doesn't matter what new thing comes along, you know. It's a battle of beliefs. If you throw that graphic up of some of these worldviews, like right now is one of the most pivotal times in culture. Because you're starting to see the different beliefs of different people. Even Christians who say they believe in God, but they really believe in the unknown God that Paul referred to here. They, they, they know who he is, but they don't actually know him. You're starting to see all these worldviews infiltrate the church, infiltrate America, and infiltrate our schools. Polytheism. You would think polytheism is some ancient thing, but polytheism refers to any philosophy which claims that there are multiple supreme creators of the universe. I would tell you that many people that you work with or you go to school with actually are polytheists. You say, well, I, no, I don't have any Hindu friends. I don't, have, I don't have any people that worship multiple gods. It doesn't say worship multiple gods. It just means they believe that there are multiple gods that you can worship. You say, well, what does that mean? Anybody who believes there's multiple ways to God or Jesus in the only way is a polytheist. And there's actually people in our church that probably believe that Jesus is not the only way. Then, you know, you can be Buddhist, you can be Muslim, you know, you can be Jewish, you can be these things. That's polytheism. Relativism is there are no absolutes. The idea that right or wrong may be right or wrong for me, but not maybe for you. Meaning truth is relative. Well, most of us don't actually believe that, but we live like that when people say, well, who are you to judge me? What's, what's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. What's wrong for you is wrong for you. What's wrong, but you can't put your right and wrong on me. That's relativism. You, you can't base that off scripture because there's right or wrong, and it's either holy or unholy, righteous or unrighteous. Secularism basically means God is unnecessary because culture is so great, you don't need God anymore. Why do we need God when our stock market's going great? Why do we need God when we have prosperity? Why do I need God when I have a new iPhone 14? Why do I need God when I have a new car? Why do I need God when my retirement's doing good? Why do I need God when we're safe in America? It means that God is just completely unnecessary. Humanism emphasizes the value of human agency individually, collectively, and relies on rationalism and science, which basically means this, that humans are so great, we are our own God. Collectively, we can join together and we can make this place heaven on earth. Right? So you take that back all the way back to Tower of Babel. What did they think they could do? They could build a tower and reach heaven. They could bring heaven to earth. Now we do that through socialism and Marxism. If we can just get together, if we can just vote in the correct way, we can, you know, social justice, we can make this place heaven on earth. Let me tell you, God made earth heaven on earth. We messed it up. Anytime people get involved with God's plan, we mess it up. The only person who can turn earth into heaven is Jesus when he returns again. Egocentrism is having or regarding the self 
or regarding the self or the individual as a center of all things. I will tell you, this is probably the worst one. Because this is preached in church after church after church after church where the gospel revolves around the individual. You're so great. God loves you so much. God died just for you. God, and you take away the fact that, no, God had to come to us because he is the redeemer of all things. Everything starts with God and ends with God. We just get to be a part of it. But if you believe a gospel that's all about you and that the universe is based on you and the kingdom of heaven is based on you, it's a totally different philosophy. Nihilism is the rejection of all religious and moral principles. It's a form of atheism. Life is meaningless and nothing really matters. Why does suicide increase? Because people are actually nihilist. They believe there's nothing actually important about life. There's no purpose to life. There's no meaning to life. But you can't get that from the creed. And the New Age is a broad movement characterized by approaches of seeking personal power. Right? You, well, well I, don't, I don't really know that. Crystals, gemstones, Wicca, astrology, all those things are ways to seek after power. And what happens is all these get polluted into the church. And then it causes divisions and discord, or it pollutes the faith of a believer where now they're no longer seeking after God, they're seeking after whatever their worldview is. You could add fundamentalism up there, which is basically just the belief that the way I do it is the only way to do it. Anything else is wrong. There's other beliefs, but it's important that we know what we believe because there's this cataclysm, this battle of belief systems in our world. Your kids every day walk into a battle of belief systems. And if you don't disciple them into the gospel, the world will disciple them into one of those other worldviews. If you don't pray over your kids, the world will pray over your kids. If you don't know what you believe, your kids can't know what they believe. It is a battle of beliefs and Everything is preaching a message. Every TV show, every reality TV show, every movie, every podcast, now even sports, it's all preaching a message, trying to conform your worldview. That's what makes the Apostles' Creed so important, is it helps realign our worldview every time we confess it. And so here's, here's why beliefs matter. You say, well, you know, everybody has their beliefs. No, here's why beliefs matter. Number one is this. Beliefs matter because your beliefs influence your identity. Touch your neighbor and say your identity. Your beliefs matter because what you believe is actually who you will become. Your beliefs matter because what you believe will actually become your identity. Your identity or, or who you believe you are, your self-esteem, your self-confidence, it conforms to what you actually believe about yourself and what you believe about God. In John 1.12 it says, but to all who did receive him and believed in his name, talking about Jesus, he gave the right to become the children of God of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Meaning those who believed became like him. Those who believed Jesus was the son of God, they became children of God. Your belief determines who you'll become. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, they, he wrote a book, numerous books, but the knowledge of the holy. He said this, he said, the most important thing about us is what comes to our minds when we think about God. The most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. You see, the Apostles' Creed, it starts out with, I believe God the Father Almighty. You know, what's interesting, though, is most Christians don't actually believe that. They believe, I believe in God the judge. I believe in God the guy who created hell. 
I believe in God, the one who forgives me for everything that I do. I believe in God who's all conditional. No, I believe in God the Father. You know what fathers have? They have discipline. They have unconditional love. They have mercy. They have purpose. They have relationship. They have, see, and so when your belief changes, your identity actually changes. Tozer went on to say, he said, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts about God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may or say or do, but what he is in deep in his heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that encompasses the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And then C.S. Lewis, who was always a protagonist, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he heard about Tozer's quote, and he said it this way. He said, I read in a periodical the other day, the fundamental thing is how we think of God. But God himself, is, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except in so far as it is related to how he thinks about us. Meaning, the most, two most important things about every single person in this room is these two things. One, what you think about God, and two, what you think about God thinking about you. The most, two most important things ever is what you think about. When you hear the word God, what do you think about? That mental image affects everything about you. It affects how you see life. It affects how you see yourself. It affects how you worship. It affects how you serve. It affects how you do your marriage. It affects how you treat your kids. It affects how you treat everybody else. What do you think about when you think about God? Then secondly, what do you think about when you hear that God thinks about you? Do you think that he thinks about you as a father? With love in his eyes? With mercy in his hands? With grace in his heart? Or do you think about him as some old man, big man upstairs that's far away and doesn't really know you? Those two things are the most important things about you because they determine who you actually are. It's, it's pivotal. There's an old book by Peter Lord called Turkeys and Eagles. He talks about this dream he had and he shares the dream and he talks about how in this dream he saw this eaglet nest. And there was a couple of eaglets in this huge nest. You know, they build their, their nest high up in cliffs. And the mama and papa eagle go out one day to get some food and as they're out, this windstorm blows by and it blows these eaglets out of the cliff and onto the floor of the floor, forest. And as they're there, there's this old hen, old mama hen, who had never been out to have chicks. She sees the eaglets and the eaglets cry, mama, 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 mama. And so she takes these little eaglets in as her own. She starts raising them with turkeys. The only problem is eagles eat meat. They soar and they fly. Turkeys eat grain and grubs and they kind of scurry along the forest floor. And so she's raising these eaglets. She didn't know how to raise an eagle. She only knows how to raise turkeys. So these eaglets are being raised around these turkeys. One day, one of the brother eagles said, hey, look, there's, there's a mouse. We can go eat that mouse. And the other brother said, no, no, we're turkeys. We don't eat mice. We're going to keep eating these grubs. These eagles are literally eating grubs and grain off the floor of the forest. Time goes on, all these eaglets are still raising and walking around the dirt like they're turkeys. They're eating grubs like turkeys, all this stuff, till one day, 
One of these little eaglets, his name was Tom, looks up and he sees this eagle soaring in the sky. And he starts to wonder if I could fly. And he starts to wonder and dream every single day. Then the next day he would see the eagle eagle flying again and soar until finally he realized he wasn't a turkey. He was an eagle. And when he started realizing, I'm not a turkey, I'm an eagle, he actually began to flap his wings and fly. The sad story about it is the other eaglets never actually flew because they believed they were turkeys. See, if you live your life believing you're a turkey, you'll always be living in the dirt. But if you live your life believing you're eagle, you'll soar above their circumstances. You'll soar above the crowd. You'll soar above the uh, temptations. You'll soar above the dirt, the soil, all those things. It happens because of what you believe about yourself. And the Bible says you are loved. The Bible says you are forgiven. The Bible says you are the head and not the tail. The Bible says you're an overcomer. But what you believe matters because it influences who you are. Number two is your belief matters because it influences your behavior. Your identity determines your behavior. So if my belief influences my identity, my belief influences my behavior. In Daniel 11.32, in the good old King James Version, it says, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people who know their God shall be strong and do great exploits. Those who know their God shall be strong and do great exploits. Knowing who God is, you become who he's called you to be, then you do stuff. Meaning, my behavior is out of my identity. My identity is about my knowledge of God. Meaning, your beliefs influence your behavior. You, the, the, Christianity, the world will tell you, religion tells you, you do so you can become. This scripture says you become so you can do. We're not saved by works. We're saved unto works because we're saved into Jesus. Then we do the great exploits. What happens is you live up to the beliefs that you have about yourself. You live up to your beliefs that you have about God. One of the most powerful stories I've read in the last six months. The story of Westmore. If you don't know who Westmore is, he's the governor of Maryland now. But he was, grew up in this rough home environment, single mom, his dad, dad, who was three years old, grew up in a single home. His mom moved him into his, his grandparents' house in New York in a rough neighborhood. They sacrificed everything, sent him to private school. He got kicked out of private school, sent him to military school. Military school, he ran away four times in the first five days. Ends up sticking it out, realizing he was there for a purpose. Becomes a Rhodes Scholar, finished on top of his class in 750 people. Becomes a Rhodes Scholar. He's interning at the mayor's office in Baltimore as he's working on another degree at Johns Hopkins. All right, so his first day on the job as an intern in the mayor's office in Baltimore City. First day, they've run a story. New mayoral intern, Wes Moore, from this cadet, cadet John Hop, all the accolades. If you turn over the page, there's another story about Wes Moore. Multiple stories where Wes Moore was this man who killed a police sergeant who was on the run. They were looking for him. So the same time this Westmore was in the mayor's office, in his neighborhood, there's actually wanted posters of Westmore. Only problem is there's two different Westmores. Same name, both grew up in single-parent households, both African-American, both grew up in really rough neighborhoods, both were in the newspaper at the exact same time. So the Westmore, if you throw that picture up, the Westmore that was in the mayor's office started having this connection of wanting to know this guy's story. So he begins to write a letter, not knowing if he'd ever receive anything back, Sends a letter to this other Westmore and says, hey, we have the same name. We're both in the paper. This is going on. I want to kind of hear your story. And over the next few years, they begin corresponding. 
Westmore, who was in the mayor's office, actually went to the jail 24 times to visit this other Westmore. And they started talking, grew up exactly the same. Single mom, poor neighborhood, around gangs, uh, poverty, the whole nine. Two different fates. One is now the governor of Maryland, and one is still locked up in prison. And at some point, Westmore, who's now the governor, says, well, I guess we're just all a byproduct of our circumstances. And the Westmore, who's in prison on basically death row, writes back, he says, no, sir, we're not. He said, we're not a byproduct of our circumstances. He said, we're a byproduct of our expectations, which means your beliefs. You realize two men with the same name, with the same backgrounds, end up at two different places because of the beliefs they believed about themselves. It's powerful when you realize the expectations you have for yourself, the expectations you have for those around you, determines everything about you. And last but not least, as a close, your beliefs matter because they influence your relationships. It influences your identity, influences your behavior, and it influences your relationships or your community. In Acts chapter 2, I'm not going to read it, is our primary scripture here. The New Testament church was founded. They were devoted to the teachings of the apostles. And out of that, they were sharing, they were generous, they were in prayer, they were in fellowship. God was adding to their number daily. But there's something about community. Community is formed by your beliefs. I Meaning we normally form our community based off what we believe. If you believe rock and roll is good music, you form your relationships off that. If you believe, you know, Alabama is the greatest team in the world, then you form your relationships off that. If you believe, you know... Country music's the best thing in the world, then you probably form your... We, we form our relationships off beliefs. So it's important to know what you believe or you'll form the wrong relationships. So community is formed by our beliefs, but also your community forms your beliefs. It's both and. You see this all the time. We, we tell our kids, be careful who you hang out with because you'll end up being like them. What we're really saying is, if you don't know what you believe, then you'll end up believing what they believe. And if we're really honest, if you look at schools right now, they are more about forming the beliefs of children than they are educating children. Why? They know the power of community. They know that in masses, you can control the belief system even more. A couple years ago, one of our, one of our daughters had a friend who is openly homosexual at our high school, right? So we're telling her, hey, you, know, you can be friends with him. Like, you know, we have nothing against that, but here's who, what we believe about homosexuality and about this. And so we said, you can't hang out with him until you know what you believe. And so what does that mean? And we're like, his beliefs about himself and about life and about God are stronger than your beliefs right now. So until you really know what you believe, you can't, you can't be really close friends with somebody because your beliefs will conform to the stronger voice. And so we told her, we, you can hang out with him, but you know, I got a buddy who wrote a book, a pastor wrote a book on homosexuality. You have to read this book first. And once you read that book, we'll talk about it. Then you can go hang out with him you know, pretty much as much as you want to. She said, okay, that's fair. So next month she reads this book. She comes back, she's like, okay, I understand the book. Here's what I believe. She said, you can go hang out with him. The first time she goes and hangs out with this boy, she comes back, she's like, that was so stupid. I'm never going to do that again. I was like, what happened? She's like, I read that whole stupid book to hang out with him, and he's just a jerk. And I was like, what? She's like, it's not even about anything he believes. He's just a mean person. And so then we're able to unpack 
all this self-esteem stuff that sometimes you start acting outside of your identity because you're actually hurt and you're broken, so then you try to hurt other people, all this stuff. But what was happening was she was realizing that her community actually affects your belief system. And so in the Apostles' Creed, when it's confessed publicly and corporately, it's re-realigning us as a community of believers, not church attenders, not political activists, not social justice warriors, that we are believers. I believe in God Almighty. That's why church is important. Yes, it starts with I in the creed. What's important is it's I and we together have power. So if you would, I want you to stand to your feet real quick. If you have the card, we're just going to read the Apostles' Creed. And over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack the theology of it. I just kind of wanted to set this up today. If I can have our prayer team come up. If you need prayer for anything whatsoever, we'll, we'll, they'll pray for you. But let's start with this. Ready? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you would, bow your heads, close your eyes just real quick. As we dismiss, I don't want to leave without giving people an opportunity that maybe you don't know God as your Father. Maybe you know Him as Judge. Maybe you know Him as the the big man upstairs. And maybe the Holy Spirit's been drawing you today to say, today's the day you get a fresh start. You get that forgiveness it talks about. You get that new beginning. You get a new slate. You get a clear conscience. You get a new beginning. He said, that's that's you. I'm not going to have you stand up. I'm not going to have you come forward. Just so I can get you pointing in the right direction. He said, that's me. Today's that day for me. I just want you to slip your hand up real high just so I can see it real quick. Thank you. Anybody else? For those of you that raise your hand, I'm going to... I'm going to pray for you, but if you do me a favor, just before you leave, in Connection Point out in the lobby, just let them know, hey, I raised my hand. They're going to get you a gift and get you some resources to get you in the right direction. We believe that's the beginning of a journey, not the end of a journey. We want to help you on that journey. But Father, we love you. And we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us, that cleanses us, that makes us whole again. And we thank you that you are a father who is patiently waiting for every one of your children to come back home. And I thank you right now for those children who have just repented and turned from their ways back to your house. I pray that you receive them, you receive them with open arms, with unconditional love, with mercies that are due every day, and an empowering grace. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.